Last week we started a new series in the book of Micah. A real famous book that everybody reads all the time. Book of Micah, chapter 2. And uh, we'll be thinking out of that. And one thing about doing these books, you, you, nobody can say, oh, I've heard that before. <laughs> these are the books that kind of get overlooked. So we're glad to take one, especially one as interesting as this one is. Uh, Micah is a very thoughtful writer, and last week it was a challenge to figure out what he was saying as he used uh, imaginary names, as you will, to try and uh, communicate his idea of repentance. And so that was a, a challenge to do. We come on this next section, chapter 2, and it's a, also a challenge too. Um, remember in chapter 1, the problem was sin, and he said uh, there's going to be judgment because of it. And then he mentioned three kings. Remember the three kings? Jotham was one, Ahaz was the second one, and Hezekiah was the third one. And Jotham was okay. Hezekiah was a bad boy. And, uh, or, I mean, Ahaz was a bad boy. And Hezekiah was a wonderful king, as good as uh, David. And so... We had these uh, situations where it goes up and down and up again. And in the middle of that, the northern kingdom, Samaria, was attacked by Sennacherib. The king of Assyria smashed it to pieces. And that's what they were warned about. I will make Samaria as a heap. I'm going to tear the place apart. And he did. And then we talked about uh, Sennacherib coming to Jerusalem and setting up there a siege on Jerusalem, and a hundred and what was it, 185,000 soldiers died in one night from a plague, or an angel came, the Bible says, an angel came, and they, <coughs> almost the entire army died right there around the walls. And so it was an incredible stepping in of God because of Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah did repent. He said, I've been wrong and I want to pray for God's help. And he stepped in and he begged God and he prayed and then God responded. All right, so now we come to chapter 2. Now the primary source of evil, as mentioned, is idolatry. There are idols all over anything but God. We'll worship a tree, we'll worship the sun, we'll worship the moon, anything but God. We don't want to worship God. And of course, that's always clear because why don't we want God? Because God's going to talk back. God's going to say, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to do whatever you think you want to do. Uh, and so an idol, people make an idol, and even this day, same thing. They want to make up a God. I've had many people tell me over the years, well, I got my own ideas about God. Many people tell me that. I got my own ideas about God. Well, it's not how it works. All right? God is who he is, and we're here to find out who he is and what he's like. And we're not here to uh, say, well, here's what I think, and that must be right. No, that's not right. We do what God, we look at what God is and understand what he is from that. And so the primary judgment on sin was because of idolatry. But there's more than that. And we come to chapter 2, they're going to define some of the sins that were there. And this is very enlightening. I think it tells us a lot about um, who God is. How does God think? What's on God's mind? When God views us, what's he thinking? How does he uh, what thoughts are in his mind when he looks towards us? And so uh, Micah's going to say in the first chapter, well, you guys worshipped any old thing you wanted to, and you paid a price for it. 
<coughs> now he's going to say, but I'm going to take it a little further. I'm going to open up to your mind other things that you did. And these are things that God particularly doesn't like. And so uh, they're mentioned here in this chapter as he's building a case. And as we're telling God, saying, here's the way you behaved. Now, now here's what I think. And so it's a good open door to help us understand God. And here we go in chapter 2 <coughs> as we are going to talk about the sin of the people and what happened and how God looked at it. All right, Chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to them that devise iniquity, that work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it's in the power of their hand. And so he says, here's a, what happened with you guys. Uh, you had a plan. Made a plan. You made the plan while you were sleeping in your bed. You're laying in your bed and you're thinking, this is what I'm going to do. I've been thinking about what I'm going to do. And then uh, when the day came, it was your opportunity and you could practice it. So you had a plan and you put your plan into practice. And so you stepped out as soon as it was daylight to do what you wanted to do. And he says, and the reason you did it, you practice it because it's in the power of their hand. He says, and you had power to accomplish what you planned. And he says, so this is not just something that suddenly came up. And he says, this was you thinking about it, making your decision, deciding what to do. And as you thought about it and decided what to do, then you, as soon as the daylight came, you set off to do it. You practice it. You're going to decide what you're going to do. And he says, uh, it was in the power of their hand to do it. Now, what is it that they were going to work out this way? And uh, verse 2, and they covet fields. So there was covet, to covet, to want something, to desire something, that you want to have it, and you're going to decide how to get it, and you're going to take it. And so these people who have been thinking and planning on what they wanted to do then found a way to do it. They had some power in their hand to do it. Verse 2, and they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away so they oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage. And so what they were doing was taking away uh, homes and homes and fields that they were taking from families. Uh, here's the word family. And God begins to view sin as you exercise it on a family. And he's very uh, intense about what this is. In particular, he says he talked about his heritage. Coveting is one of the things that the scripture warns us a lot about, tells us a lot about. First Timothy, if you look over in the New Testament, T's are all together. Uh, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, 1 Timothy, there are certain things that God warns us and tells us. These are things that are dangerous. You think that they're not. He said, but I want to tell you, they are dangerous. And if you let them get a hold of you, you're really going to uh, pay for it. And so <coughs> coveting is one of those. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm looking at verse... Number nine, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into which many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, 
piercing themselves through with many sorrows. He's talking about people who believed in God, who trusted in God, but were pulled and pulled away by coveting. And they got something that they wanted, and they said it was very harmful to them, and it hurt them, and eventually pulled them away until their life was full of sorrow. Their life was full of sorrow. So it's one of those things that kind of sneaks up on us. Remember what Jesus said, beware of covetousness. Why? For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. You'll never say, let me think about my life and how good it is. I got this and I own that. He said, no, those don't even go on the scale. What you own, what you think you want, doesn't go on the scale of your life being what it should be. Jesus said a man's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. So it's a very careful thing. They planned it on their bed. Why? They wanted something. They wanted a piece of property. They wanted that house. They wanted something. And they're determined to get it. And he says, and so they used their power, however that was, used their power, and they took it. And he says, in particular, in verse 2, even a man and his heritage. Now, this is a particularly interesting part, I think, of chapter 2. Uh, he says, you took their heritage. What does that mean? Well, let's take a look at Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Third book in the Bible, chapter number 25. Leviticus, chapter number 25. And we have here what God did for families. It was God's original intention to make families very, very important so that when he looked down, yes, he's willing to bless an individual, but he is particularly focused on family. He wants to bless family, and it's in God's mind to do that. And here's one of the ways that he did it, and it's really a, an ingenious system uh, if you want to, if you, if you like welfare today, everybody loves welfare, right? Maybe not. All right. Uh, this was the best system ever devised. And let's take a look at what it is and why it works the way it does. Um, uh, Leviticus chapter 25, begin reading at verse number nine. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. Or on this particular day, we start a holiday, a special one. You shall hallow the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land to the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And so he says, every 50 years... Every 50 years, there comes a year we call Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. And the blow the trumpet, let everybody know it's arrived. And what is going to happen on that day is anybody that's a captive uh, is going to be set free. You shall return every man to his possession. You shall return every man to his family. A jubilee shall be that fiftieth year be unto you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself, nor gather the grapes of thine vine undressed. For it is the jubilee it shall be holy unto you. You shall eat of the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of jubilee you shall every man return unto his possession. And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught thy neighbors, you shall not oppress one another. And that's what's happened. They're oppressing each other. He said, that's not what I want. According to the number of the years of the jubilee, thou shalt buy thy neighbor. According to the number of the years of the fruits, he shall sell unto thee. So what it meant was this. When they divided the land, Joshua comes in, 
and he says, this property goes to the tribe of Judah. This property goes to the tribe of Reuben. This property goes and so on down through the 12 tribes. And he separates the land into pieces and gives it some to each tribe. And then each family in the tribe is given a, a portion of land. Uh, some of it was high ground where you could tend sheep. Some of it was low ground where you could grow crops. All different kinds of ground. But anyway, it was given to your family. You owned it forever. Forever. Now God said, I'm going to take care of your family forever. Now every, uh, he says, as time goes by, things can change. So say you're really poor and lots of crops have grown good. What are you going to do? Well, you say, well, I'll go work for you. I'll be your servant, okay? So you come over and work for me, and I'll make sure you get enough to eat. All right, okay. So he's working for him. He's not working his own property. He's over there working somebody else's property. Your jubilee comes, he goes home. Whatever debt he had is wiped out. And the same way with the property. If you say, well, i got to make some money, I'm going to sell this field. So you sell the field. Well, in 50 years, if it, when Jubilee comes, it's coming back to you. And so what's the field worth? Well, if you buy it on the second year after Jubilee, you got it for 49 years. So it's worth more. All right? If you buy it on the 48th year, you're only going to own it for two years, so it's not worth as much. So he says, now don't oppress each other. Don't cheat each other, all right? If you're going to sell that piece of property, you know and understand it's only going to be for however many years till the year of Jubilee comes. And then when Jubilee comes, everything goes back. You go back to your property. Your debts are settled. And whatever you do, uh, you're back home again on your own property, and you can start again. And how long is 50 years? Well, it's like two generations, all right? So you can work the property and then give it to your son and he'll work the property. And then what? Maybe he's unsuccessful. Maybe he's got to sell it. Well, 50 years goes back. And so it was God's method of equalizing. Now in our social programs, we take from people that pay taxes and give to somebody else. And that's kind of how we do it. And it's not nearly as advantageous. Why? Because when you get your property back, what do you got to do? You still got to go to work. Still got to work your property. You got to live, all right? You're expected to take care of your property. If you don't, and if you decide to sell it off, well, you'll live working for somebody else all your life, and, and your son may have to do it. But eventually, God will shift everything back and will try to keep things equal. That was a very remarkable way to operate, and God did it for families. He wants families to be preserved. He doesn't want a family to go off as a slave here, and then he never has any offspring and just goes on and on. He's trying to bring families back together. So God is very interested in families, and the year of Jubilee is something that he says, these people back in Micah 2, he says, you even take him, you oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage, you take away what belonged to him, cheat him out of it. He says, you're cheating people out of it because you want that field. You can't live without it. And so you figure a way and you got some power over him, whatever it might be, and you take his property away. Right? And he says, that's family, and that's what God intended it to be. And uh, it's, it's not, God intended the family to go on and on and on. All right? And that's not what they were doing. Verse 3. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which you shall not remove your necks, neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. Right, so God says, now you're taking their property. You're cheating them of their possessions because you're so selfish. 
you're selfishly viewing things. And he says, and so you're determined to take away their possessions. <coughs> and you're doing it. He said, now I'm going to do something against your family. Oh, so God deals in, in a family structure in the way he's going to do this. All right. And this was true even in Jesus' time. If you look at uh, Matthew 23, as Jesus talks about the end of time and the way things were in particular for these, for these people. Matthew 23, I'm looking at verse number 14. What does it say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. And what they were doing in Jesus' time, money was everything. When time Jesus got to Jerusalem, money is everything. The entire priesthood is in it for the money. Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, his father-in-law, and seven of those family members were high priests, and they were entirely in it for the money which they made selling sacrifices in the temple. They loaded their pockets, became extremely wealthy, and Jesus said, you go find a widow's house and get rid of her and take the house. And he said, he said that's a bad thing you're doing. And so this kind of thing in Jesus' time, now we're talking Micah's time, way back in Hezekiah the king's time, before they went off as a, a captive. And, but it went, come right back into being and was used in this time. So he says, we're going to do something. He says, verse 3, saith the Lord, behold, against this family, you have thought this out and decided how to take people's property. He said, now I'm going to do something to you. You shall re not remove your necks. And don't think you're going to get away from it. Shall you go haughtily? For this time is evil. You've done something bad. Verse 4. In this day shall one take up a parable against you, lamentation with doleful lamentations, and say, we be utterly spoiled. He has changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it? From me turning away he that divideth our field. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. So the whole system of you own this property and your family owns it into perpetuity. These people were stealing people's property in their houses and ruining families one by one. And now God said, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to do the same thing to you that you did to them. And your property is going to be taken from you forever. And you're never going to get it back. Verse 5, Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Or that is, you people who have stolen property, I'm going to have Babylon or uh, <coughs> Assyria came and failed. But Babylon would come under Nebuchadnezzar and they would take Jerusalem, and all those people, they either killed them, they killed a lot of them, or they hauled them off to Babylon. And so there's no Jews left. So who owns that property? Don't matter. They're either dead or in Babylon. God took their property. For how long? Forever. When they would eventually get together and come back, uh, nobody knew whose that was. Who's that? I don't know. All the system of who owned the property, which was set up for family reasons, was gone. And so when they did finally return, the whole idea of jubilee, there's return of property, it's all gone. He says, there's nobody that can, he says, cast a cord by lot. Or that is, you can't go out and survey the property and say, this is mine. I got a cord. I cast it out. I survey this property. I decide my property goes from this tree to that river or whatever. He says, it's all gone. The entire system was taken away. And so... When you stole people's houses and families were hurt by you, and God said, I'm going to hurt your family. 
and they ended up either dead, and a lot of people died, or they hauled them off by the thousands off to Babylon. So the whole land is empty. The whole system is gone, and there's no way to restore it. Verse 6, prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them, they shall not take shame. Right, so what they did was they said, uh, any prophets at this time, while you were stealing homes and ruining families, uh, there would be a prophet somewhere. Prophet or a preacher, really. That's kind of a better way to say it, same idea. The preacher would say, listen, God's speaking. And Micah would be one of these. God's speaking. He says, they said, what prophesy ye not? Say to them to prophesy, they shall not prophesy unto them. So, and not only did they say, look, we don't want to hear it. We're not going to listen. You go ahead and talk. No, no, they didn't say that. They said, you will not preach. You will stop. You will not preach. Of course, that happens in parts of the world today still, of course. Uh, but uh, they said, not only do we not want to hear it, we will not allow you to speak. So you prophets, shut your mouth. We don't want to hear it. Verse 7. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly. So these people, and it goes to this. We believe we have power, and we can take your house. And we covet it. And so we're going to take your house, we're going to harm your family. We got the power to do it. So then over there, this preacher starts preaching. And you can shut up too. I don't want to hear what you got to say. Why not? Because he's telling them that they're wrong. And he says, so we're going to stop. We don't want to hear anybody telling us we're wrong. We have the power to do it, and we're going to do it. So Quit talking at us. Quit telling us that we're wrong. We want you not to bother our conscience. We have a conscience. It tells us. We don't know if that's right. And so we don't want you talking about it. So you're going to shut up. And then in wonderful, in verse 7, he said, Is the Spirit of the Lord straightened? That's an old word, long since gone out of use. Uh, but uh, if we were going to put it in our language, Michael would say, did you think you could limit God? Do you think he could shut him up? you think you can't hear him? You can tell the prophets to keep their mouth shut, but you can't say, God, don't be telling me anymore. I don't want you telling me. I'm not going to listen, God. You don't get away with that. God is not limited. He is not straightened, he says. <clears throat> he says, when I talk, I'm doing it to help you do right. And so I'm going to speak to your conscience, and I'm going to speak to your heart, and you can't tell me to shut up. That's uh, not what I'm going to do. You can't stop the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can still convict, and he will convict, and he does convict. And he says, so if anybody thinks, well, I just need to turn God off. There you go. I can't hear you. <laughs> God has a way. And I've seen just recently wonderful ways that God has done that. When people think that they've shut God off, he's got a way. He's got a way that he gets back in there. And it's, you know, I bow to it because somehow I play a role in it sometimes. I have no idea what God's got up his sleeve. And I suddenly realize that God's talking to somebody. God's communicating to somebody. And they don't want to hear it, but they get, it gets in there. God is not restricted. He can speak as he wants, and he can do what he wants. And so this attitude that we're going to steal property, we're going to do whatever we want, we have power. You haven't got the power to shut up God. You just can't do it. 
and he comes as he chooses. And we're in the book of Acts, what does it say? Suddenly there was a sound from heaven and a rushing mighty wind, and God came in. That's not what the priests wanted, not what they wanted. And God said, I don't do what you want, I do what I want. And I'm going to come, and I'm going to talk. And uh, he talks. And uh, the apostles, remember the apostles in the temple, they call him in, and what do they say to Peter and James and John and the rest of them? Did we not strictly forbid you to preach the name of Jesus? And they, what did they say? Well, we ought to obey God rather than man. <laughs> Sorry, we're gone. And they went out and preached right, right back out and preached again. So we strictly prevent, God cannot be stopped. He is not limited. He is not straightened. No matter what the attitude people have, you can't quiet God off and say we're not going to listen to him anymore. Right? Okay, verse 8. Even of late, my people has risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe of the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. And so he said, the people of God are acting like God's enemies. And he says, lightly or yesterday, here's the things you just did. You just did. There's some uh, stranger. He is a peaceful traveler. He is not involved in war. And he is averse from war. He's a peaceful traveler. He comes walking through your property. And what do you do? You harass and you uh, uh, possess whatever he's got that you can grab. And you take it away, he says. You, you pull a garment off of them as these were just peaceful men going by, because you're getting more and more and more greedy. Verse 9, the women of my people have you cast out of their pleasant houses, and their children have you taken away my glory forever. He says, so women and children doesn't make any difference. He says, you work against anybody. You don't have respect towards a home. You don't have respect towards children and a mother. You don't respect those things. And you bother everybody, peaceful travelers, women in their houses, and even children. And he says, you harass them for what you want. Verse 10, arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. He says, you think that you've got the property now. I own everything I want. I got everything. I took whatever I wanted. I own it. And so uh, here I am at rest. I'm at peace on my property. He said, no rest for you. Don't think for a minute that you're going to rest on that property. That is not going to happen. You're going to pay for what you've done. All right. So uh, verse 10, arise, ye depart. This is not your rest. You're not going to come off of this okay because it's polluted you took it by force by theft or any other way you could get it it shall destroy you even with the sword destruction if a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie saying i will prophesy of thee of wine and strong drink he shall even be the prophet of this people if you got a choice, well, who you want, some guy comes along and he'll tell you anything you want to hear. He'll lie through his teeth and he'll say, and let's have a drink. <laughs> let's have a drink, folks, and we'll all join together and we'll toast our new situation. He says, yeah, that's your prophet right there. That's the guy you get. You won't listen to God, and you won't listen to the prophets. So you're going to get some liar who'll tell you anything. And he says, he'll, he's going to be the prophet that you want. Well, we'll see how that goes. Okay, so here's the question. <clears throat> you got a group of people that's intensely selfish and intensely covetous. They're going to take whatever they can get their hands on. They're going to grab it. 
and go. That's what's in their mind. And uh, they refuse to listen to prophets. They're not afraid of hurting women and children and simple passers-by. And they close their eyes to God. And God says, you took everybody's land. I'm going to take yours. And so that's the sin that God's pointing out. You're hurting the family. And I'm looking out for families, and I'm watching over families. I don't know about you, I love that about God. Nothing more pleasant to me than God's watched my whole family. And I like to look back and say, he's been watching my family as far back as I can go. Far back as I can go. We sat with relatives on uh, Saturday night going through pictures back into the 1800s. And they brought one up and they said, who's that? And I said, that's a preacher. He used to preach. People came from miles around to hear him preach and none of them knew that. And I said, it's nice to think God's looking back. He's been over my family, looking ahead. He's over my family. Wow, what a wonderful thing it is to have God so interested in a family. God so interested in a family. And when I was a little kid, I had like 20 cousins or maybe a few more. Once a year, we'd get together at Grandma and Grandpa's house and all run around like wild Indians. And uh, when I was five years old, my grandmother pointed at me and the whole crowd said, that's going to be the preacher. I don't know how she knew, except for she knew that God was watching over her family. And she's the one that told me things about the past, how God watched over. She said when her mother died, she, her mother looked out the window, said, I see lights coming towards the house. And then she died. And she told me all kinds of things, proof that God was watching over our family. And that's a wonderful thing. I remember my father preaching at a uh, funeral service for one of his brothers. And he said, I'd rather be an Olson than a Rockefeller. <laughs> and he was talking about God's blessing. I agree. I agree. I'd rather be an Olson, have God's blessing, than, than a Rockefeller. Who cares? I look, at, look at the people who are coveting and what they got. They got wiped out. All right. So here's the question that comes to mind. Here's these people idol worshippers, the entire northern kingdom is gone. Sennacherib has come to Jerusalem, laid siege to it, God set it free. But there's things going on in the population, and that's what he's talking about here, the way you behave and the way you act. And these are things that God is particularly not happy with, the way you're treating family. And so you say to yourself, man, these people are a mess. Uh, are they all bad? Are they all bad? Is it all these people bad? Is there anybody that's good? And you would think to yourself, wow, they seem to be doing really bad. But here comes verse 12. This is where Micah is going to jump over the mountain. This is where he really... Uh, captures who God is and what God will do. Chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. So he says to the family, Jacob, he uses the name Jacob. Why? Because Jacob was the one that had the big family, right? Jacob had 12 sons. And he represents the whole nation of Israel, those 12 tribes. And so whenever he uses the name Jacob, he's using it in a family sense. Okay, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of families, he says. And I'm going to assemble all of you back together. I'm going to get my family back together. That's a very noble thing. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. And there's a word that he uses that becomes famous throughout the Bible. A remnant. 
remnant of minority would be a word that would describe it. A small portion, uh, a small group, a remnant. And he says, what's going to happen because you stole everybody's property, they're going to take all your property. Babylon will take over the whole nation of Israel and leave the land empty. See, Jerusalem is in in ashes, nothing left to even build, and they go through the land, and the land is empty. They all went off to Babylon unless they were killed. And so here's an empty land. And he said, but I'm going to gather a group of people, a remnant. And that word remnant starts to go throughout all the prophets. They begin to talk about there's a remnant. There's a little group. There's a small group. There's a remnant, he said. And those remnants are there. Little groups, minorities, small groups of people, remnants that God gathers. And we think of one of the most famous remnants. Uh, the temple was run by thieves. Thieves. Uh, murderers. The temple in Jerusalem was run by murderers. They were the one that plotted to kill Jesus. They stole everything they could get their hands on. They were stealing widows' houses. It was all about money. The entire religious system was junk, useless. So what do we got left? The whole religious system goes bad. Well, there's a little young girl, and her name is Mary. And she's engaged to another guy named Joseph. And there's one priest in the temple who listens to God named Zechariah. And his wife is Elizabeth. And they have a baby named John. And in the temple... There's an old man named Simeon and a woman who's over 80 named Anna. Who are they? The remnant. Tall minority. Tiny group. Just a little group of people. God says, I'm watching the remnant. I'm watching the small minority. And I know that I have faithful people. And what does he bring them together as? Family. Mary and Joseph, right? Cousin to Elizabeth and Zechariah. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And what are they? Just family. God pulled together. Uh, made a remnant out of them. Later, back, if you go back, you get to the book of Esther. Who is it? Mordecai. And Esther, his, his uh, uh, niece, and they're a little remnant of people who believe. And so wherever and whenever uh, things turned really bad, there has never, ever been a time when there is not a remnant. It may be small. It may be insignificant in everybody else's eyes. But that one remnant little group of people, out of that came Jesus into the world. And so through the remnant, God works. And Micah says here, I'm going to assemble my family back. How many? Well, all of them, he says. And many left, he says. But I'm going to gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah, all right, or as a flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by the reason of the multitude of men. He says, I'm going to gather these people like a shepherd gathers his flock. So in the power of God, his ability to say, the families you look like, they all got destroyed and there's nothing left. But I've been watching and I see. I see who they are. I see the faithful ones. I see the families out there that stand for God. I'm watching that remnant, and I'm going to pull them together like a flock, pull them together like a group of sheep, tight, moving together. And I'm going to have that remnant uh, be a part. And that word remnant taken here from Micah, like I said, goes on to Isaiah and all the rest of them. 
And they all repeat it, remnant, remnant, remnant. There's a little group, always a group somewhere of faithful people. And you get into the world, you watch it again. There's a time when most of the world, as a matter of fact, got to the point where almost the entire world didn't believe that you can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Most of the world didn't believe that. And along came one guy, Martin Luther. He said, I think you just need to believe in God. That's what I think. It's a pretty small remnant. And if you look at that remnant, what happens? In his house, people begin to come to his house. And some of the most famous theologians of the time would come to his house. What are they? That little family. And his wonderful family, his wonderful family uh, becomes uh, the focus of all that God wants to do. And so the remnant is an idea that always continues. And you never have to be afraid. Is the church ever going to become totally extinct? Never, not ever, not ever. There is always a remnant of faithful people. And he says here, he says, for all that you've done and for all the price that you're going to pay, there's still people who believe. And I'm going to gather them together. And now verse 13, better yet. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out of it and their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Right, and here is a word unique to uh, Micah. He says, we got a breaker. We got a breaker. Well, in our language today, I think well, I got a breaker in the front seat of my truck and went in my power box, right? They call the circuit breaker. That's what we think of today. This is a unique word that Micah used because he's thinking, how can I explain how God works? How can I explain the power of God to come to this remnant Draw them together, like he says, pull them together and, and, and do something for them. He says, the only thing I can think of, the best word is to call him a breaker. Who's the breaker? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the breaker. He's the breaker. All right. We used to call Levi when he was small, I don't know, something like the, the monster kid or something. Because he broke everything he touched. Heidi had toys she played with for five years. He got rid of all of them. He smashed them all to pieces. And he says he breaks everything he touches. That's this breaker here. Jesus Christ is going to break things. Well, what's he breaking? Well, we're going to start, first of all, with a remnant of people left in Babylon as captives. They're captives in Babylon. Among them, Daniel. Isn't he a faithful one? Isn't he part of that remnant? Doesn't he pray to God three times a day by the window? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who say, I will not bow down to your God. I'll burn you. Go ahead. And they threw him in the fire, and they walked around, and they came out without the smell of smoke. What was it? The breaker broke the power of the furnace. The breaker broke the power of the lion's den. They threw Daniel in the lion's den. Next morning, are you there? Live forever, king. Get him out. You wanted him in there. You're first. <laughs> and, and he threw the people that put Daniel in the lion's den, and it said before they hit the ground, they were dead. The lions, ah, bit them right out of the air and killed them. Because the breaker broke the power of the lions. And now after 70 years in captivity, he says there's coming a breaker. What's he going to do? He's going to break the entire captivity. 
They say, you can't leave Babylon. Along comes Darius. He said, I have a decree. You guys, go home. He broke the power of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon over the captives, and he said, you can go home free. Matter of fact, the breaker went a little farther and broke his purse open. And Darius said, you need money to rebuild. I'll give it to you. And the breaker broke all the chains and all the things that bound everything that held them there and set them free. And so this breaker has the power to smash the things that bind us, to smash our bad habits, to break those things that hold us. Remember Peter's wonderful escape. He's chained, laying on the ground, surrounded with 16 Roman soldiers. And God says, I'm the breaker, I'll fix it. The chains fall off of him, the soldiers are out cold. They walk and he walks through the doors, through the doors and says, when they get to the outside door to go out into the street, it says the gate opened of its own power. How'd that happen? The breaker said, get out of the way. Move gate, we're coming through. And Peter walks right out through all of the bondages broken and he's set free. And so uh, this breaker comes to you and I, and he says, how you doing? You need help. I come to break the bondage of your life. I come to break those things that are holding you back. I come to smash them in a million pieces because you're part of my family and you're coming with me. I'm gonna gather you like a shepherd gathers sheep. And so here in this passage where we're saying, we're talking about all the bad things people did, and all of a sudden we realize not everybody, not everybody. There were people who believed and people who decided to stick with Jesus. And he says, there's my remnant, there's my group. That's my family, I'm bringing them together. And whatever's in their way, I intend to smash it. And he smashed it our way back into Jerusalem. And he smashed their way through all the powers that tried to stop him on the way to the cross. He smashed his way through all them, went to the cross. They put him in a grave. What did he do? Then he really smashed the place. He smashed the breaker, smashed the gates of hell. Baker smashed the side of hell, went through the side wall. People were falling out all over the place. Coming back into Jerusalem because the breaker went to where death was and he broke his way out of it. So it's a wonderful name for Jesus Christ given to us by Micah. As in the midst of family stresses, and family oppression that he's got his eye on. He said, I meant for these families to have their own places and to live in their own land and to have it returned to them regularly. That's what I wanted. I wanted families to be set forever. And now I'm going to have to do it a different way. He said, and he found a way to do it. He calls us together as family. He said, we're going, shall we go the whole way? Shall we go together? The breaker has set us free. All right, that's Micah, chapter 2. We'll go on to chapter 3. Thank you.